What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We don't really know nearly enough about God, but when we look at Jesus, then we see with a shock and awe that ah, that's what God is like. That's what it looks like when God becomes human. The Deconstructionist Podcast is produced by Nicholas Rowe at the National Audio Preservation Society Recording Studio in Newark, Ohio. Follow us on social media at www.thedeconstructionist.com, on Facebook at Deconstructionist Podcast, Twitter at Deconstructcast, and Instagram at Deconstructionist Podcast. If listening to this podcast has benefited you in any way, please consider making a donation. The donate link is in the show notes, or you can visit our website and click the donate tab. All right, all right. This is, I've been, there's been part of me that's been exploding Ready to do this one. When did we do this one originally? <sighs> April? April? Oh my gosh. How did we, how did an extrovert like me <laughs> hang on to this for so long? Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast, everyone. <laughs> I am your host with a cold, Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson, who's probably catching one. So, And Merry Christmas <laughs> and Happy Holidays and all of that good stuff. We have got yeah. another stocking stuffer for you today. <laughs> all I can say is, is uh, um, Adam and I... It's it's mean in a way, but we giggle every time you guys get on social media and you say, hey, you guys should really try to get this person on. And uh, knowing that we may have already gotten them and we're like <laughs> Just sitting on it, if only you guys knew. But of course, we can't say anything because that would ruin part of the surprise. Yeah, just like Christmas. Absolutely. And being in the spirit of Christmas, because it's now December, 
and we're getting very, very close to, uh, uh, for Christians, the, uh, the birth of, uh, of Jesus, um, we thought it would be appropriate to, uh, to have a conversation about the man. Not the historical birth of Jesus. Right, right. I mean, let's, let's just deconstruct that for a second. <laughs> yeah. Hijacked, yeah. you know, pagan religion yeah. coming in. But like, hey, we're giving the pagans some love. Yeah. Let's put it in December. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he, I'd like to think that he was born during a, a warm summer month. You know? I'd like to think that he had a nice little golden fleece diaper. Yeah. Little yeah. Sweet, disposable, though, in those sweet, days. Sweet baby. Or not Sweet disposable. baby Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, Adam, who, who would be like the best person to get on to talk about Jesus? Do I get a Christmas wish right now? I think you do. My Christmas wish would be to have N.T. Wright. You know what? On to talk about Jesus. That is a great idea. Because N.T. Wright is like the guy that nobody can find a place for, that everybody loves and some people hate, and he's freaking amazing. And he has a voice and an accent that you literally want to fall asleep to in a good way. Not boring. Yeah. I would like him to narrate either the Harry Potter series to me or maybe perhaps like The Lord, Hobbit. Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah. Lord of the Rings, yeah. yeah. Something by Tolkien, preferably. Oh. Um, well, but since, I, would like, I would like to have N.T. Wright. Since, since you said that and since it is Christmas, I, uh, I would like to grant you your wish. What? Um, in fact, uh, we already did it. Oh my gosh, As that's right. So, Merry Christmas, everybody. Um, we get to talk to, like, I mean, this guy's an absolute titan. He was, uh, uh, he's a, the leading... The man, probably in the world, one of the smartest guys on the planet, uh, but one of the leading New Testament scholars, and he's a uh, retired Anglican bishop. Um, I mean, this guy is just a heavy, heavy hitter, um, and I, I have the ap- utmost respect for this guy as a historian. He's just an absolute phenomenal historian. Yes, absolutely. Um, Tom Wright, or Nicholas Thomas Wright, uh, has a really special place in my spiritual journey, my spiritual construction and deconstruction. And, you know, he's really a linchpin for me in hanging on to my Christian faith in in certain ways. And, you know, some people that listen to our show, um, I've actually told, you know, via email or tweeting or some other mode of communication, you know, when they're losing sight of, uh, you know, what, what exactly, you know, Christianity is or whatever, to read N.T. Wright's Mass, it's massive, but it's it's very worth reading. It really is. Book on the resurrection of the Son of God. Yes. And his argument, it's not apologetics, it's historical scholarship, and it is the most unbelievable account of what we even mean when we say resurrection and what that means historically and in pagan, all that kind of stuff. I can't, I want to hug him right now. Yeah. Just for writing that book alone. Yeah. Yeah, and he's and, written dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of others. I think he makes the joke at one point. I, I think I heard in another interview where he writes so much so frequently, and he's such an, an, an amazing author that he's actually forgotten a lot of what he's written. He's like, did I write that? He's like, he writes extremely fast. Yeah. Like, uh, I think he, he mentioned at one point that uh, somebody had made a criticism of, of one of his books, and he responded within 24 hours with like a 30-page like response or something. And it and it's all like well written. Yeah, it, it it looks like he would have taken years to write what you know. Anyway, he yeah. he's absolutely and he talks and converses 
with the same kind of ease and brilliance. Yeah. And when we did this interview, I just, there's a point where he kind of tells us he's like watching the sunset. He's in Scotland and he's just yeah. looking out his like big kitchen window, just watching the sunset. And I'm just like, I'm basically there with you, man. I'm, I'm <laughs> sipping tea in Scotland at your kitchen table and just discussing theology with you. Oh, this is a good one. This is a Christmas treat. Yeah. And, and the thing I, I really like about him is it, he was, uh, or was, is, um, I'm looking at another theologian's uh, stats or you know information right now. So who's no longer with us, Marcus Borg? Oh, but um, Mar- he and Marcus Borg have you know a lot of varying, uh, uh, differing views rather, and uh, actually co-authored a book together at one point. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I I just have so they're much sparring buddies. For that. Yeah, they're sparring, but they're friends, and and that's so important. You know, it, to, for people with differing viewpoints to engage in discussion, to cr- critique one another. And I, I think it's just uh, one of those things we don't see enough of. No, we don't. These days. And I, I just, I mean, no, that's a just a friendship amazing. between theological opponents. Yeah. That, that sounds like an oxymoron in our terms. <laughs> yeah. It, all we see is YouTube videos and, and then uh, obviously the even far worse YouTube comments oh, of people that don't know how to be theological opponents, but they only know how to be theological enemies yeah. or philosophical enemies. And that's, that's why this guy is such a winner, man. He's, he's amazing. So, yeah. you know, let's, let's let this thing speak for itself. And, and yeah. you know, that's enough wrapping paper. Let's, yeah. Let's give them the, the present. First, the first of many gifts that we're about to give you, but uh, yeah, without further ado, here we go with N.T. Wright. <laughs> yeah. No, N.T. Freaking Wright. That's N-T too many names. Right. N.T. Freaking Wright. <laughs> or Tom. Freaking N.T. Wright. Tom Freaking Wright. Tom Freaking Wright. Yeah, All right. Go. You guys get the idea. Here we go. <laughs> Enjoy. N.T. Wright, it is with uh, a great pleasure, honor, excitement, and, and all the in-between there. Yeah. Uh, I hope I can even get through this interview to welcome you heartily to the Deconstructionist Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be with you. We, um, we've interviewed so many people, and, and really you were at the top of our list as somebody to get. Um, you've, just, you've become sort of the New Testament guy. Could you, could you talk just a little bit about and introduce people that maybe are unfamiliar with your work just kind of how you've come into the work that you're currently doing. Yeah, um, I was fascinated by ancient history when I was at school. I was fortunate enough to study classics from an early age, including learning Latin and Greek quite young. So um, I wanted to study classics at university and did. But simultaneously with that, I was aware from an early age that I was called to ordain ministry. There were lots of clergy in my family, particularly on my mother's side. And it was quite an easy thing for me to imagine being uh, in parish ministry like my grandfather had been, et cetera, et cetera. And so I kind of figured that these two ought to fit together somehow. I wasn't too worried how that was going to be. And then through my teens, I was introduced to quite um, exciting Bible study through, um, actually, it was Scripture Union Boys Camps in my teens. I used to come up to Scotland, and we used to spend two weeks um, 
climbing and sailing and canoeing and all that kind of stuff. And then in the evenings, there would be Bible studies and people would be excited about what was in the scriptures. And I gradually learned to study for myself, to read. I was reading the Bible for myself day by day and uh, got the taste of, of being able actually to teach other people. In my late teens, I started doing that. And that was just really exciting. And so though I was studying classics at university when I went to, to college, um, uh, I always knew I wanted to be getting a, to be using the classical studies that I was doing to get into the Bible. So when I went to seminary, um, I worked extremely hard at uh, getting on top of particularly the, the Greek New Testament and reading uh, whole copious chunks of Old Testament as well. But it was always the Greek Testament that was the focus of my study. And so then it was just a question of, will I be able to do a PhD? And uh, if so, what will it be in? And it didn't take much to convince me that I ought to be looking at Paul. And so I dived into Paul. And, you know, that's, that's really how it, how it all happened. And and for me, the ministry of teaching and preaching and the academic study of the New Testament in its historical context have always gone side by side. And, I mean, in the light of where a lot of people are today, perhaps I should say this, that as a young preacher in the early, 19, early and middle 1970s, uh, you're faced every week in my Christian tradition with a passage given you by the lectionary, that is, the passage which somebody has decided is going to be read in church that Sunday. And every gospel passage, of course, carries a question. Can we believe that Jesus actually said this? Do we, are we sure that Jesus really did this? And uh, I found that difficult because um, I knew that there were many, many scholars from all over the world who'd said, oh, no, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus never said anything about that. Jesus never quoted that passage of Scripture, whatever it was. And so I found myself driven in the late 1970s and then the early 1980s to look with as much historical rigor and integrity as I possibly could at the whole of the gospel tradition and just see uh, what could be said. And so uh, I made those focal points, Paul and Jesus, my two, my two main areas of study, and it's been like that ever since. Oh my gosh, man. You know, somebody that's followed your work for a long time, I was I was really unaware of a lot of that motivation and I, I think oh, right. it, okay. mm-hmm. I think I think it fits perfectly with uh, a lot of the people that are listening to the show right now, including John and myself that have continued to see our our approach to spirituality and faith evolving. You know, a lot of times learning um, sure. leads to a lot of unlearning. And sometimes that's a shock. Sometimes that's uncomfortable. Sometimes that's a surprise. Sometimes that, that leads you into a place that you don't particularly like. I wonder with all being raised in the church and being given this stuff at an early age and being steeped in a tradition as a lot of us are, and obviously it's different here in America, but sure. I think, I think there's probably some similarities here. And then, oh, yeah. and then oh, yeah. going to add it with the rigor that you did historically trying, I love the words you used, trying to handle it with historical integrity. I'm sure right. that that produced a lot of unlearning and did, did you, yeah, yeah it, did you ever have to wrestle with some of the doubt or, you know, shock that came around with that? Yeah, um, it, it wasn't so much shock. Um, it was a matter of, oh my goodness, look what's here. And I'd never imagined it because uh, I think like many people growing up in a Christian home and going to church and being part of various different, in a, in a broad sense, evangelical movements like Script Union and so on. I should say the word evangelical means something a lot bigger and broader than in the UK than it does often in the US, but that's, that's mm-hmm. fine tuning. Um, I think I was living much of the time with two things which I certainly had 
to unlearn, one of which was what in the trade we call a docetic Jesus. That is a Jesus who wasn't really human. He only seemed to be, but he was really a divine being who was sort of appearing on earth, doing neat stuff, and then going away again. Mm. And the thought that he really was a human being who wrestled with complex issues himself and who struggled in prayer to figure out what the Father's will was. And obviously you see that in the Gethsemane story particularly. Yeah. Is this really the way, etc.? That that made a deep impression on me. And actually, it's funny in a way, but uh, I know exactly when I started to ask that question, and it's when a friend lent me uh, a long playing record, as it was in those days, of Jesus Christ Superstar in <laughs> 1971, when uh, the, one of the songs is Jesus Christ Superstar, Do You Think You're Who They Say You Are? And yeah. at the time, I remember thinking, oh, that, that's almost blasphemous. How can they possibly say that? <laughs> but it kind of sat there as a question, did he really think? And what were they saying, actually? Because in my tradition, it was like, do you think Jesus is divine or don't you? And, and that's it. Is he the son of God in that sense of uh, divine? And then in the 1970s, there was a huge fuss theologically in the UK because a book called The Myth of God Incarnate came out. It was mid-70s sometime. And they were saying, oh, well, the phrase son of God in that time just meant Messiah. It didn't mean second person of the Trinity. And I was starting to study the relevant texts, and I thought, actually, that's quite true. In Psalm 2, in Second Samuel 7, various other texts, son of God is uh, the coming king. So how then does that phrase get used to denote Jesus as what we would say the second person of the Trinity? And in a sense, that is still one of the major questions that sits at the heart of contemporary New Testament studies. But for me, that went with the exploration of Jesus as a human being without in any way stopping being uh, Jesus, the embodiment, the incarnation of the living God. Um, what did it mean for Jesus to be a human being, to face real questions, real temptations, real struggles? You know, St. Paul says he was tempted in all points like we are, um, yet mm. without sin. Um, uh, sorry, the letter of the Hebrews says that, and, and uh, Paul says without sin, implying the same thing. Um, and uh, it, it was something I'd never thought about growing up, that Jesus was actually tested, tempted, right across the board as we are, and uh, that these were real struggles. And then I started to read the crucifixion narratives and think, oh my goodness, yes, the mocking on the cross, if you are the son of God, you know perfectly well that it's failed messiahs who end up on crosses. Yeah. And so the, the temptation then to question everything right up to the last minute, I think is, is, is clear. It's in, it's in Matthew and, and Mark particularly. So that on the one hand, and then going with that, the other thing which started to change when I read C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles, which I did, I guess, in the late 60s sometime, but um, which took a long time to play out, was the idea that instead of talking about, quote, going to heaven when we die, unquote, the Bible really is much more interested in the whole new creation, in the redemption of creation. And I gradually, bit by bit, came to realize and then started to articulate and teach that the message of the New Testament is not, here's how you go to heaven, but here's how you become part of God's new creation, so that when, and in the end, God remakes heaven and earth, 
and raises his people from the dead, then we will be part of that, part of God's total new project. And so the question which everybody asks at a funeral, where is so-and-so now? And the answer used to be, well, he's gone to heaven, and there he is. He's just straight there, or she's just straight there. Um, Actually, the Bible isn't terribly interested in where people are immediately after death. There are little hints, there are little flickers in that. The Bible's far more interested in the long-term resurrection future. But once you realize that we're talking about new creation and re-embodiment, then all sorts of things in how we then think about being Christians today make a totally different sort of sense if we're already, by the Spirit, part of the new creation project um, right here and now because we are the people who follow Jesus who was raised from the dead. Man, oh my. Uh, to go back to one of the things you, you, you mentioned earlier about kind of your inspiration in, in regards to, you know, did Jesus really say this and kind of what kind of inspired you to go into the field that you're currently in? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I really love that you said on another interview um, a ways back uh, was kind of the distinction between um, ancient history and what maybe we would call like modern history. And I think you gave the example of, uh, of your son, you know, uh, doing history into like a, a French oh, yeah. battle. And how um, all of the re- ancient history, in regards to ancient history, all of the resources that we have for the historical Jesus could, I think you said, fit on one bookshelf. So uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, well, pretty much so. Um, uh, if not one bookshelf, at least one... Um, uh, you know, one set of shelves, one, maybe four or five shelves. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the fascinating thing there is obviously anyone studying ancient history, whether it's um, Roman history, Greek history, whatever, um, uh, quickly comes to realize that there are huge gaps. There's lots we really, really don't know. I mean, an example from my field is that we know that there was a war between the Jews and the Romans from 66 to 70 AD, ending with the fall of Jerusalem to uh, Titus, who was the son of Vespasian, who was the emperor uh, or becoming emperor around then. Um, and we know a lot of detail about that, partly from archaeology, but mostly from Josephus. Josephus is a Jewish historian who was there at the time. He had been a Jewish general. He changed sides. He decided to work for Vespasian. So he was right up there. Now, he has plenty of agenda, but he knew what was going on. He knew the people by name. He writes in great detail about it. Now, 70 years after that, there was another war between the Jews and the Romans, with the Jews led by the would-be Messiah who got the name of Bar Kokhba, the son of the star. Now, most of what we know about the Bar Kokhba war, we know from archaeology, particularly from coins. And the the historians who wrote about it were like um, one or two hundred years later, plus a few rabbinic legends. And it's really, really frustrating. We do not know nearly enough about the Bar Kokhba revolt. Now, that's really interesting because the Bar Kokhba revolt is almost exactly 100 years after Jesus' public career. And like Jesus' public career, it's a kingdom of God ministry. It believes that God is starting the new thing right now. It's what you call in the trade inaugurated eschatology. That is the end, the new times, the last times have begun, and we are part of them. And they, they believed all that. But we have to infer that from a few coins and the inscriptions on them and from the bits and pieces of rabbinic legends and historians like Dio Cassius and so on. So, yeah, ancient history is full of holes and gaps. 
which we just don't have in modern history because we have archive material and newspapers and so on. So, um, but then as a result, with ancient history, what you're always doing is sketching as big a picture as you can. What's actually going on in Galilee in the first half of the first century AD? How much do we know about it? Who is doing what, where? What are the big towns? What are the main movements? Who are the, the, the leaders? What are the, where's the energy coming from? And then you have to say, okay, here's a document, call it the Gospel of Mark. Um, does that actually describe stuff happening which makes sense in that context? And the trouble is we've read the Gospel of Mark as a Christian document, and so we've seen, for instance, Peter's confession. Um, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And we, with hindsight, have said, there you are, Peter's saying he's the second person of the Trinity. That's not the case. Peter is saying, you're the Messiah, which means we expect you to be secretly planning some kind of military revolt, um, and we're going to join you, and we're going up to Jerusalem, and we're going to fight, and we're going to win, and you'll be the king. And you can see that that's what they mean. So you can fit Mark in. The trouble is that we've read so many of these texts with layer upon layer upon layer of later Christian interpretation um, that we fail to see the vividness, the, the, the extraordinary human dynamic that's going on in the actual text themselves. And it's only when you've seen that that you can then really say, now, who is God in the middle of this? If this is the story of God incarnate, what are we actually saying mm. the word God means? Right. And that's where the challenge always comes. Mm. So uh, I, I think you've already started to talk about this a little bit. And um, yep. for those of you that 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 know your work, know that you've been, uh, you know, I think rightfully so, a little skeptical skeptical of uh, some of the work that, like, the Jesus Seminar has done. Sure. So how do we, with, you know, in the context of ancient history and doing ancient history, how, how can we be sure that the evidence that we have for Jesus is substantial enough to say, this guy is, is for real? Well, um, again, it is always a matter, as in any historical knowledge, of, uh, of, of working from as many starting points as you can and working in to where it's all, where it's all going. It is always possible for somebody to say, I really don't believe that any of this stuff is true. Just like it would be possible if I blindfolded you and made you come straight into the room in the house where I'm sitting now and showed you the, the room, the, the view out of the window, you might say, oh my goodness, that's so beautiful. I think that's just a painting. I think you've got that cleverly stuck on the back of the window. And uh, <laughs> I, I'm just not going to believe that you have a view like that from your house. Um, and then I would have to take you outside and show you it from a different angle or whatever. Now, with history, the way that works isn't so easy because what we're looking at is documents from the past and all historical knowledge comes with a spin. There is no such thing as a point of view which is nobody's point of view. And so because we have lived in a rationalist, positivistic culture where we say we want the facts or we don't want anybody's interpretation, we just want the facts, then when you discover that there ain't no such thing as facts, that wow. all facts, um, all facts come with a spin, yes. then people in our skeptical age say, oh, well, it's just all spin then. And the answer is, actually, no, we don't really believe that about things in the real world. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a kind of a, a, a very lazy football fan. That is, I follow <laughs> one particular team, Newcastle United. I very, very seldom go to their matches, but I like to see how they're getting on. Now, when <laughs> they are playing their local rival, Sunderland, uh, I'll tell you that if 
there's a win for one side, then the newspaper in Newcastle the next morning and the newspaper in Sunderland the next morning will have a totally different view of it. One will say the referee was biased or drunk or something. The other will say <laughs> this was the greatest victory our team has ever won. Uh, um, but they will both tell you the same scoreline. Um, because, you know, that's what they have to do. That's what a newspaper does, tells you the score. But they will have a different spin. So with the history, we're always looking, whether it's Josephus or whether it's Matthew or whether it's whoever, we're looking for the angle of vision, but we are then saying but something actually happened. There was a score. Somebody really did stuff here. Like, we know that Jesus of Nazareth lived and was crucified. We know that Jerusalem fell, um, etc., etc. There are some basics that nobody with any idea of how history works would dream of denying. And from those basics, you can work out what was Jesus doing. We know that Jesus was announcing God's kingdom. That's absolutely basic. If you deny that, it's like saying that what I've got on the end of my wall here isn't a window, but just a painting. And it's quite easy to falsify that. And we know that Jesus was crucified. So here is somebody leading a kingdom movement and getting executed by the authorities. Already we have the beginnings of a three-dimensional historical picture. And when we then go to the documents, we say, well, it really looks as though what was going on was this and this and thus and so. And then we can fill in from there. Of course, it's always open to the skeptic to say, well, I don't believe Jesus would ever have said anything like that particular saying. Mm. Um, And that's the point at which, of course, a Christian would come in and say, well, there's something very strange about this, because actually, when we decide we're going to follow Jesus, and when we start to pray to God in the name of Jesus, Jesus becomes a real person to us, and we have this strong sense that we know him. Now, of course, knowing somebody, even in ordinary life, when you know a friend, a family member, a spouse, that's still actually a very mysterious process. You may think you know them, and then they surprise you. Oh, I didn't know you were the sort of person who would say that or do that or whatever. People are, are very mysterious, and so it is with Jesus. And the trouble is that just as in history, you can get the wrong end of the stick and you need to be corrected. So in personal knowledge, you can get the wrong end of the stick and need to be corrected. And as far as I can see, Christian discipleship involves those two things, history on the one hand, faith on the other, constantly asking questions to one another, not trying to rule each other out of court, but faith saying, I think I sense the presence of Jesus, and Jesus is like this to me. And then we do the history and say, well, hang on, Um, supposing we're talking about the real Jesus who warned about the danger of riches or the danger of what comes out of your heart or whatever. Are you fooling yourself? And likewise, the historian, the Christian historian says, um, I think the Jesus I'm discovering historically is like thus and so. And when I go into church on Sunday or when I kneel down and say my prayers day by day, how does that play out? And these are questions which are not easily solved and which I think we have to live with. And part of being human is to live with those questions and not be phased by the fact that we have to live with them. You know, all the great things of life, whether it's learning a musical instrument or learning a new language or falling in love and discovering who this person really is, they take time. There are challenges. Uh, If you think some of you can do... 
by getting three books off Amazon and reading them this weekend, then mm. you've got another thing coming. There's a, um, anything worthwhile is going to be a lot more than that, but you can certainly mm. make a start. Sorry, I could talk about this all night. You, um, you <laughs> well, just so you know, we could listen to you all night. Absolutely. So, so that's totally fine. In fact, there's a, there's a little joke in our community. We like listening to you so much that we're hoping someday you just put out audiobooks of like bedtime stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's well, like, there you go. And, and, I mean, and the, the, the nearest equipment. The, the nearest equivalent to that is what we already, I think, mentioned before we came on air. Um, the uh, the online courses that I've that I've been doing, and that there's there's more coming. Um, oh have yes. You, have you have you guys caught up with those? We're not caught up. I actually just found out about it. I didn't even know about it. I had just always been oh. onto your it's like the NT Right page where it's lots of articles yeah, yeah. and like point us you know in all these great directions. I didn't know you had this website until you yeah, and, you and it, I started. It's a new venture, just of, as of about the last year or so. Um, I think the first recordings we did were just over a year ago, and we we have five courses out there at the moment: Galatians, Philippians. Uh, one on worldviews in the Bible and the believer, and one on simply good news, and one on simply Jesus, My one of my more recent books about Jesus. And coming quite soon is a much longer course on Paul and his letter to the Romans. Mm. And because that's much longer, it's actually coming, I think, in three different parts. Um, but anyway, these all consist of a string of basically 18 or 20-minute lectures. So um, one of the reasons for my doing this, by the way, is because I... Uh, really have done too much traveling um, <laughs> uh, over the last few years. And a couple of years ago, after my big book on Paul came out, my publishers sent me literally around the world, and I was just, I was away from home between a third and a half of the year. And that's oh, wow. be hopeless. You can't live like that. No. So we, we said, look, is there another way we can do this? And the answer is, yeah, the camera comes to um, my study in college, and I talk to the camera, and then the editors and the people producing the course material, they do all that. And so hopefully a lot more people can sign on and listen to me talking about these various things. And uh, it's been fun, actually. What do you, uh, what, what can our listeners expect to get out of this? Um, I, you know, if, they, if, they're, if they're listening and they're unfamiliar with their work, they, they probably think it's just going to be, you know, your random just kind of Bible study. But I, I know just from well, looking at it, it's quite a bit more. That. Yeah. Yeah, these online courses are done through the portal called Udemy, which I had never heard of before, but um, the colleagues of mine in America who've helped me set this up um, got it all sorted. That's U-D-E-M-Y. It's an acronym for something. I don't even know what it is. (laughs) But they run courses. They they run thousands of courses on everything from um, how to make baskets to how to learn Russian to how to fly a plane. And and somewhere in the middle of that, it's N.T. Wright online telling you about the New Testament. And (laughs) and these these are courses that anyone can sign on anywhere and just take them at their own pace. Um, there is quite a bit of, of written material, of course material, that goes with it. Um, so and I, I don't even know how much they cost because I don't do that side of it. I just sit there and talk. Um, but uh, I think if anyone is really um, uh, unable to make the cost, for instance, people in the third world, um, then they do do coupons, some sort of means test to, to make sure that nobody who wants to take them um, but can't afford to is is left out. But that that's what it is basically. It's like an online university course, except you don't you don't of course get a degree or a diploma or anything at the end. You just get something saying I have taken this course for what that's worth. I think that's absolutely oh, that's great. fantastic. I think that if at the end of it, if you get a certain score. You can get an audio bedtime story read by N.T. Wright, <laughs> yeah. along well, with well. along with a hug if you're ever around St. Andrews. <laughs> <laughs> 
You might just. You might just. Buy me a cup of coffee. Oh, yeah. done. <laughs> done. Ab- absolutely. We've got great coffee culture here in Columbus, Ohio. But I'd love to swing back around and then and then yep. get, a, get a little bit into your new work on uh, the cro- yep. cross, which is a very, very hot topic. We've talked to several, yep. several people about lots of different things around the cross. Can't wait to hear you talk about that. But before we do that, um, I know yep. our listeners would love to just dive a little bit deeper. We talked about, you know, how do we trust the historicity of Jesus? I think that if if people can get to the point where they say, and I think most people typically do at this point, where, okay, this guy was for real, something happened, Jesus of Nazareth is legit, but what, what did he ever actually think that he was divine, or is this something cooked up later uh, by, yeah, his, by yeah. his followers? I think that's the next big question yeah. that people should wrestle with, to be honest. Right. Well, I think uh, I, I think that goes with the question: Did he rise from the dead? And those, those are not the same question. People sometimes confuse them as though the resur- if the resurrection happened, that would prove that he's divine. And of course, um, that that's a misunderstanding because the Jews in those days believed that all God's people would be raised from the dead, and that didn't mean that they would all be divine. Um, but the claims of Jesus, and people often talk about the claims of Jesus. You, the difficulty for us here is that in Western culture and. I think particularly American culture, um, the word God comes to us with various, uh, it's hard to to say this really, in in a cultural context with various philosophical connotations, and it's very difficult for people to put their minds back into the mind of a first century Jew. Um, Who is this God person, this person that the Old Testament calls Yahweh, though by Jesus' time the Jews um, had made it forbidden to pronounce that name. But the critical thing is this, that for us, um, when you say to somebody in the street, do you believe in God? And if they say yes or no, and then you say, well, which God is it you believe in or don't believe in? They'll often describe this strange being sitting up in a cloud or um, up in heaven somewhere, looking down on us, making rules, being cross with us, and so on. And it doesn't really fit with a first century Jewish idea of God or an early Christian idea of God. It comes to us from the deism of the 18th century, where God is an absentee landlord, a kind of celestial CEO, but you don't see him around the office too much. He's, he's upstairs somewhere. And then particularly from the Epicureanism of the 19th and, and, and well, still to this day, 20th century and 21st century, which says that if there is a heaven, it's miles away from us and it doesn't have anything to do with us. And then if you want to be a Christian, you have to believe that some Somehow it's suddenly there's an invasion from outside. And so saying Jesus is God or Jesus is divine makes people think of almost sort of Jesus the spaceman. Jesus, this odd character who floats around from um, from heaven and lands on earth. And, and people have the, the strangest ideas about this, fueled, of course, by popular movies and all sorts of things. Now, in the Old Testament, God is really not like that. Um, and the point is this, heaven and earth in the Bible overlap and interlock. They are made for each other. They are made to go together. They are, they are somehow joined at the hip. The problem is that we on the, the earth side, earth is the human sphere, and heaven is the God sphere, that we've messed things up and so we get muddled. And so there is a disjunction. Um, but the, the two are supposed to work together. And here's the trick. In the time of Jesus, the Jewish people 
believed that their God had told them to make the temple, they'd made it, he'd come to live there, but then because they'd grievously offended them, he'd left town, he'd gone away, but they said he'd be back. Malachi said he'd be back, Zechariah said he'd be back, Isaiah said he'd be back, but nobody actually said he has really come back to live in the temple. And they have this idea, and much literature of the time is talking about what will it look like when our God comes back to deliver us, uh, to reveal his glory at last? What will that be like? And the four evangelists, particularly John, but all of them say, you didn't expect it like this, but what it looks like is a young Jewish prophet striding about, announcing that this is the time for God to become king, healing people, feasting with all the wrong people, and finally, going off and dying on a cross. That is when you see the divine glory being revealed. So that our trouble is, people start off with a meaning of the word God, and then they assume that we Christians are fitting Jesus into that meaning of the word God. That's not how it's done. In the New Testament, Paul says, John says, Hebrews says, we don't really know nearly enough about God. But when we look at Jesus, then we see with a shock and awe that, that's what God is like. That's what it looks like when God becomes human. And then all Christian theology really starts from that point. Not that we know who God is ahead of time and fit Jesus into that, wow. but that we only have a sketchy idea of who God is and then allow the actual story of Jesus to reconfigure the meaning of the word God. That's really hard. It's hard for Christians. It's particularly hard for modern Western atheists. But that is the challenge of the New Testament. I wonder, and I know, um, you know, my my favorite book that you've ever produced that re that really helped me in my seasons of you know doubt, or you know, we kind of call it deconstruction loosely, whatever, mm -hmm. just just wandering and wandering. Um, when I read, and I I read actually almost every page of it uh, on the resurrection of the Son of God. Oh wow! Okay, I, I okay. thought that your approach was so different than anything I'd ever seen before that it was refreshing. And if I could sum it up um, from my lay perspective. You didn't seem like you were trying to prove that the resurrection happened, but you were almost asking a question that took you back to the resurrection as a, a possibility. Um, could yeah. you just touch well, on that just a little bit since it dovetails into yeah, that? that? that's right. I mean, as a classical historian, I've always been fascinated by the views of the ancient Greeks and Romans about death and what happens afterwards and all of that. And then when I started serious work on the Bible, I got fascinated by what ancient Jews believed about what happens after death. And there is this range of belief in the Greco-Roman and the Jewish world. Um, it's anything but a uniform belief. And even the Jews who do believe in resurrection, that's the the Pharisaic school within Second Temple Judaism that believe in resurrection, they, they have uh, quite a fuzzy idea of what it'll be like and, and so on. But then in early Christianity, you see right from the beginning, they have a very clear belief 
not only in Jesus' resurrection, but in the resurrection of all Jesus' people. And they're not fuzzy at all. And this belief has moved from the periphery of their vision to the center of their vision. Mm. And it's moved from being uh, a rather vague idea of maybe there'll be a resurrection, we're not sure what it'll be, to a very definite sense of a transformation, a bodily transformation to be part of God's bodily transformed new world. And all of this leads me as a historian to say, you have to say something to explain why all the early Christians believed that. Because we've got, you know, the, the New Testament is full of very different documents. Revelation is very different from Galatians, and Mark is very different from John, and Hebrews is different again. And yet they all say resurrection. That's where it's at. And so for me, this became a historical inquiry. How do we track the early Christian belief? And of course, it all goes back to, well, they say that Jesus himself was raised from the dead. And because we know a little bit about what that was, they would say, that has given us a much sharper edge to what we believe about the ultimate resurrection. So then it forces the question back, what then do we say happened uh, three days after Jesus was, was executed? And then you can probe into that, and it's quite remarkable that all the skeptical arguments, and I've read dozens and dozens of them over the years, most of them actually cop out. They just say, oh, well, we know that didn't happen, so the, the, the women went to the wrong tomb, or this must have been made up 50 years later or something. And really, these arguments, these skeptical positions, they're the ones that don't stand up to historical scrutiny. And as an ancient historian, I found that really very exciting to go through that. I'll tell you an interesting thing. My old philosophy tutor uh, in Oxford, um, who is now in his 80s, and I'm still in touch with him, he's a lifelong atheist. And we've had many conversations about many things over the years. He's a really nice guy. And I sent him that book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. And he read it from cover to cover, wrote me a long letter about it. And he said at the end, he said, when all said and done, you've made an excellent argument. He said, I simply choose to believe that there must be some other explanation for the rise of early Christianity, even though I have no idea what that would be. And so I wrote back and said, fine. You acknowledging that is your choice, the evidence, it, it's not that you're, you're basing yourself on some great um, scientific evidence, whereas I'm living in cloud cuckoo land, you're saying, yeah, the evidence really does point in this direction, but I am unwilling to go there, and so I choose to believe there must be some other explanation. That seems to me a very interesting argument, the way that played out. Anyway. You see where I'm going. That reminds me of, um, you know, Huxley. When Huxley got to university, he said to himself, you know, I'll admit it. I, I, want, I want the world not to have meaning. I want God not yeah, to exist yeah, yeah, because then, yeah, I, then yeah. I can do whatever I want. Yeah, and I, yeah, yeah, I actually yeah. developed a great respect for him just for the fact that he would actually say that. Exactly. The, the, the honesty of that is, is greatly preferable to um, the, the, the sort of fuzziness of, of so many skeptics who say, oh, we're the ones who are really thinking seriously, and you Christians are just uh, waving your arms in the air. Now, of course, there are many Christians who haven't thought it through, and bless them, if, if, if the, all they can do is wave their arms in the air, well, that's fine. Hopefully they'll learn a bit better. But um, yeah, the, the honesty and rigor is, is what we ought to be aiming at. Mm. So with, with both fundamentalism, or what we might call Bible worship and, and modern skeptical atheism, uh, both being fairly recent movements, uh, yeah. how, how do you think an incorrect reading of the New Testament, and even Scripture in general, um, has not only poured gas on, on the fire of both of them, but um, are, are both sides you feel approaching Jesus in the New Testament just incorrectly? 
Yeah, I think it, it, it is very difficult because anyone who has any of the Christian tradition in their heads and their hearts will have sermons and hymns and all sorts of things which are not all wrong, but they, they usually don't actually get right to the heart of things. And, and this comes through, and obviously it's very much in my head because I'm trying to finish off this book on the meaning of the cross at the moment, and a lot of the hymns and poems about the cross um, actually focus on uh, angles of vision which the New Testament really doesn't quite sustain. And so it's very difficult for people when they're trained in a particular school of spirituality and this is how we pray and this is how we sing and so on. And these form the way we read the text. Mm. And so for me, um, the Bible itself is the authoritative thing rather than what we can make it. And so I'm constantly, and I get into trouble for this, of course, I'm constantly going back to the text and saying, hey, hang on, guys, Romans 1 to 4 really doesn't say what you just said it said. Let's read the text itself. Let's read it as rigorously and carefully as we can, not in order to, to disprove um, Christianity, but in order to probe more deeply into what it really meant at the beginning. Mm, that's so good. That's so good, man. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I heard you say um, when you were addressing some students at the University of North Carolina when you were here a while back and uh, mm -hmm. really, I think they ended up writing an article about it, and um, it really caught you know some people off guard. It's like, oh, we've got this New Testament scholar that just said that doubt actually can be a very good thing, but you said we have to be skeptical of our skepticism. I wonder if you could tell yeah, us a little absolutely. bit about what that means. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's very clear that in Gethsemane and on the cross itself, Jesus is actually... Uh, I, I would use the word, Jesus is doubting when he says, is this really the way? If, if there's another way, please take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. He has up till that point, as far as we can tell, embraced the vocation. He has believed that he knew exactly which way the Father was taking him. And in the end, he was right. But he had to go through a moment of facing the possibility that he might just be deluded. After all, Jesus' family said he was mad. His friends sometimes thought he was mad. Um, his friends sometimes saw what he was doing and were scared, and they, they were in awe. Um, what's, what's he up to now? And they didn't understand him. So it's perfectly plausible to say that Jesus, as he goes to the cross, on the one hand, there is this utter determination to see through to the end the vocation to which he'd committed himself, um, because he believed that that's what, in his reading of scriptures, his own personal vocation was, but that that's utterly compatible with saying, um, I do actually know that this is what happens to failed messiahs. They're deluded fanatics who think they're God's anointed, who think they've got it all sewn up, and the time they realize their mistake is precisely when they're nailed to a cross or near equivalent. And so you can see how, if that's so for Jesus, why shouldn't it be so for us as well? And we can see, obviously, cases like Peter and Thomas in the Gospel story, where Peter denies Jesus and Thomas doubts him. Um, and that's fine. God works with that. Jesus, Jesus works with it. Jesus confronts them and says, okay, if that's where you are, that's where we'll start. Now let's take it forward from here. He says to Thomas, here is the evidence. I would rather you'd believed without it, but since you want it, here it is. And to Peter, 
three times, do you love me? Having Peter having denied him three times. And again, it's very much, okay, if that's where you are, that's where we'll begin, and now here's how we go forward from there. And that's always a bit humiliating, actually, because sometimes when we're really in bad shape, like somebody who's suffering from depression, um, depression sort of defines you, and you, you sink into it, so that the only reality you know is this depressed reality, and you're a bit worried about what would happen if, if you had to give it up. Um, and as a pastor, I know that that's how it is for some people. In the same way with doubt, sometimes people get defined by doubt, and they simply can't appear to break through it until and unless something happens in their life, someone close to them has a, has a wonderful experience of God, or something happens which joggles them out of it, or they read a passage of Scripture which helps them to turn the corner, or something. Mm. So. Fantastic. Yeah, so we've got to, you know, be careful of time here. We know you've got a million things to do, and we just want to thank you again for, you know, clearing your schedule or doing whatever you had to do to spend the evening with us here. Uh, It's fine. You're very very welcome. Is there anything else you'd like me to say briefly? Yes, yes. Um, (laughs) We want you to finish by talking about your new work. Say as much as you want to say about that. Yeah, okay. I mean, I I want to say that the the cross is and remains the center of the Christian faith. I am sometimes accused of of giving up on traditional beliefs about the cross. I want to say no. I go back again and again to the Gospels, to Romans, to to Hebrews, to Galatians, to Revelation. And what, what is taught there about the cross is hugely important. However, because we have platonized our eschatology, now, that's a big, fat, fuzzy phrase. Because we have looked at the going to heaven thing as the main aim, what happens when you say, uh, do we get to heaven or don't we get to heaven? If that's the big question, is that you then look at what it means to be human in terms of pure moralism. Have I been good enough or haven't I been good enough? And so we have platonized our vision of the end. That is, we've had this going to heaven thing rather than new creation, new heavens and new earth. And so we have moralized our vision of what it means to be human. And that means we miss out on the whole human vocation to be image bearers, to be the royal priesthood, to be people who worship the true God and so reflect his image into the world. And that's the thing that we got wrong. It isn't just that there were 15 rules and we broke all of them or 613 rules and we broke all of them. It's much richer than that. There was a human vocation and we turned away from it. It was to be uh, the glory people, the people who would reflect God's glory into the world. That's what we've turned away from. And so the remedy, uh, the, the, the way that we have conceived the remedy because of the going to heaven stuff and because of the moralistic vision of humans, we've conceived the remedy simply in terms of Jesus taking our punishment. And I want to say there are passages in the New Testament which do say that Jesus took our punishment. I'm not denying that. But they belong within a larger whole, which is God's victory over the power of evil and God's restoration of the image-bearingness that vocation of human beings. So it's a kind of a triple thing. Because of what we think about going to heaven, we have shrunk the vision of what it means to be truly human, simply to have you kept the rules or not, and then if you haven't, what's going to happen? Oh, well, fortunately, Jesus took the rap and he's kept the rules as well, so that's all right. And so we we have shrunk the New Testament's rich vision of the victory of God over evil, which is achieved by his taking of the effect of all the evil in the world onto himself. 
And so we have left ourselves with a shrunken version of Romans, of Hebrews, and particularly of the four Gospels. One of the fascinating things about evangelical theologies of the atonement of what happened on the cross is that often they seem to miss out the Gospels. They simply go to a particular reading of Paul and Hebrews, and they forget that actually Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling a story about the inauguration of the kingdom of God climaxing in the death of Jesus. And unless we are thinking about the death of Jesus in relation to its being, the climactic moment in Jesus defeating evil and launching his kingdom on earth as in heaven, then we are not thinking biblically. And my my complaint about so many evangelical, would-be evangelical, biblical, uh, or evangelical visions of the cross is that they are insufficiently biblical. And my aim is to become more biblical, not less. And I know it's tough. It's a difficult and gritty subject. And every time I get close to it, I find it's a real wrestling match. And uh, um, uh, all sorts of things are going on in my life, which I have to wrestle with as well. Mm. But please, God, I'll come through and produce a book which will actually help us all in the days to come. Mm. (laughs) When can we expect this book? Uh, it's scheduled for October. Um, that, uh, for that to happen, I have to have the final copy to the um, publisher in about a couple of weeks' time, and so I've got my work cut out. I've, it's all written. I'm just editing it and polishing it, and I've, I've had various friends read it and say, Tom, you just can't say that, or if you're going to say this, you need to add this or explain that or whatever. So that's what my task is next two weeks, including, I may say, some time at... Um, Pepperdine University in Malibu in, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, I'm going to be lecturing on it there, and I'm hoping for some good feedback to, to be the, the final, the final uh, uh, polishing of, of the project. But that's, that's what I'm engaged in right now. Uh-huh. Oh, and by the way, the title of the book, <laughs> uh, this uh-huh. was the idea of the American publisher, not me. The title of the book is The Day the Revolution Began, a subtitle, Rethinking the New Testament's Vision of the Cross. Wow. The, the, the idea being that something happened by 6.30 p.m. on Good Friday, something was true about the world which was not true at 6.30 p.m. the previous night. Uh, what was true? Something had happened through which the power of evil had been broken and the world was a different place. And the challenge of being Christian today is to work out what that means. Not only in my life, but in the mission of the church in the world. Wow, we we Man. we absolutely cannot wait to, to read that. So, uh, well, say some prayers, guys. Thank you. Absolutely, you've sold at least two copies right here. So. <laughs> I was hoping for a free one. Man. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I'm just so, kidding. So, so, so the the final co- uh, question that we like to ask of all of our guests, yep. and and we would love for you just to talk just briefly about this before we say yep. goodbye. Um, what advice do you have to those who are kind of spiritually curious and and those who are also going through what we would call a crisis of faith. Yeah, yeah. Well, everyone is different, and all crises of faith are different, but they do share some things in common. And uh, I would be very sensitive about it, and I get emails from people all around the world, and I routinely say, I cannot be your pastor at long distance. You need somebody to be your pastor who will look you in the eye and with whom you can be honest and who will be honest and confidential with you. Having said that, I would say the Bible itself is full of all kinds of things designed to meet very different needs. My father was a prisoner of war for five years under the Nazis, and for the rest of his life, his favorite book was Ecclesiastes. I don't know anyone else whose favorite book was Ecclesiastes, (laughs) but if you've been through prisoner of war camp for five years, then I guess 
the grittiness, the okay, this is the messiness of life sort of stuff in Ecclesiastes. He was able to cling on to that mm. and grow out from that into other bits of scripture. But he used to say, that's my favorite bit. And he had Ecclesiastes 3, to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose. He had it embroidered. My mother embroidered it for him. It was in a frame beside his, beside his chair in, in, in their living room. Um, and so I would say for everybody, there is a passage. The Psalms are amazing. Don't ask necessarily um, what do they all mean at the moment. Just dive in and swim around and see where you belong in the Psalms, because some of the Psalms are utterly depressed and down and at the bottom and in the pit, and yet they are clinging on. And then other times they bring you through and bring you out. The passage above all, which I have said to many people, um, read it like a great poem. Isaiah chapters 40 to 55. Sorry, I'm talking to Americans. Isaiah chapters 40 <laughs> to 55. Um, just read it through at a run. Don't stop and say, what does this verse mean? What does that verse mean? Let it wash over you like a great symphony. And then do it again. And just sense the power and the poetry and the majesty of it. And then, you know, there are other things depending on, some people may know all that by heart and still be depressed. Fine. Okay, that's perfectly possible. Maybe you need to do something else. Maybe you need to go and play a round of golf. Come here to St. Andrews and play all the golf courses within 10 miles of where I live. You know, just, just <laughs> give yourself a total break. Um, but while you're on that total break, breathe deeply and with your breathing deeply, say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And even if you don't mean it, even if you don't know what it means, then just try breathing that in and breathing that out as you're walking around, as you're gazing at the beauties of God's creation. Live with the possibility of God. Live with the openness to Jesus. And this is very broad brush stuff. There are millions of specific things which will require much more specific treatment. But the scriptures, the prayer, God's good open air, these are great gifts, and they're there in order to bring us from wherever we are to the next place God wants us to be. That's at least a start. Man, that was, that was worth closing on. Well, <laughs> Bless you. Dr. Wright, just thank you so much. We hope that um, if you enjoyed this at all and you'd ever like to come back and talk about the work you're doing or answer a few questions for us, uh, we, we enjoyed this immensely, and we'd love to have you back again someday. Thank you very much. It's been very good talking to you, and you've been gracious with your questions and letting me rabbit on about things. Um, yeah, keep in touch. You've got my email. It's good, it's good to talk, and thanks for publicizing those online courses. That's great. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. If I could make one suggestion, I love the way that you approach Scripture and how you argue it and how you talk about it so much. It seems to me like you get... Um, a lot of love from the conservative side, from the secular side, from the liberal <laughs> side, and to write a book on people who uh, to to write a book about doubt and faith. Uh, I think you're very yeah. equipped for that. I don't know if that's ever well. In in some ways, yes. I mean, I'm one of those funny people that I never, uh, I've never had the kind of doubt that some people have. I grew up believing, and my belief has matured and it's shifted in focus, and it's I hope developed and changed. But there have been dark and difficult periods, but they have, they have been periods where either we've been desperately short of money or there's been sickness in the family or something like that. But I've never actually stopped believing in the middle of all of that. Mm. Uh, many times I've shaken my fist at God and beat on the table and said, what are you doing to me? But I've never actually stopped believing. So I, I don't relate well 
or in, in that sense, to people who find that they just can't believe um, because it's always been a given in my life. But on many other aspects, then who knows, maybe one of these days. <laughs> well, that'd be we amazing. Just, uh, we love your work and thank okay, you so much. Thank you very much indeed. Good talking to you. You Take too. Care. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That face it hides when I turn to the light But in the deep of night Constellations rise Well, that was fun. <laughs> His voice, though. Yeah. Yeah. And and you're always afraid to make a joke about it, you know, because I'm sure they're like, this is just my voice. But for us Americans, it's like, I, I don't know, man. It's like eating really good ice cream and you're like, man, that was satisfying, you know? It's so smooth and yes. delightful. I don't it, know. Smooth and delightful is exactly what it is. <laughs> Adam, Adam and I are both just worn out to the hilt at this point and barely hanging on for life. So, And you know what I love about our podcast? What's that? I, about our podcast. What I love about our <laughs> podcast is that we're not professionals. Like, we are no. two super nerds that are, like, really psyched that we get to do this. Yeah. And for anybody that wants to hang with us, that's yeah. what you're going to get. Yep. And we just got to talk to N.T. Wright. Uh, yeah. And his voice was incredible. Today's been a weird day, Today's man. Today's been a super weird day. There's another interview we did earlier that uh, you guys don't know about, but you will in two weeks. And uh, um, let's just say you guys are going to enjoy the, uh, the nice little bow that we wrap on this year. That is 2016. Super, super, super cool. Yeah. Um, in addition to uh, some of the things we talked about in that wonderful interview, I just want to let everybody know that I'm currently working through his newest book called The Day the Revolution Began. And if you have not got something to read right now and you want a fresh look at the cross, which I'm guessing if you're listening to a podcast called The Deconstructionist's Podcast, had getting a fresh look at something like the cross might actually be right up your alley. So if you need any last-minute gift ideas for husbands or wives or friends, you could not do better than to get his book, The Day the Revolution Began, and get a look at Christianity and a look at the cross that's really going to leave you asking more questions. It's going to leave you in a... It's, it's wonderful. I don't want to say too much, but it's absolutely wonderful, um, the ideas presented in that book. And as far as that interview goes... The way this guy talks about Jesus, all I can say, man, is I'm not sure we'd have a podcast like the one we have right now if there were a lot more Christian leaders like N.T. Wright. Do you know what I'm saying when I say that? I completely understand what you're saying. Just the humility and the, but the, but the, the conviction, the scholarship, the research but then, you know, he's just, he's just humble and he's sweet. And there's a, there's a non-threatening way yes. that the information comes across that is inviting. Yes. And that's why I just love this guy. And I can't recommend his, all of his books. He's got a podcast. Anything you can find from this dude, get your hands on it and, and make it happen. Yeah, so um, as always... Uh, if you like the music that we're using, we've had really fun, a, a ton of fun lately uh, with the different artists and bands we've been able to use. 
Um, you know, if you don't already follow us on our uh, playlist that we have on Spotify, um, we will have the uh, we'll put the link up again on uh, social media so you guys can find that. Um, but uh, yeah, I you know what I can't remember who we're using this week, but it'll be up in the show notes. Don't worry. But I would. I keep forgetting. It'll be fantastic. If you like the music on this episode, check the show notes, and it'll be fantastic. And and I kept promising this fan and his family, uh, this listener, um, who's just a really awesome guy. He's been really nice to us in social media. That I would I would give him a shout out. We're we giving a fan shout out right now. And, and I f- I think it's appropriate that I kept forgetting because now it's like a Christmas we should gift. we should do fan shout outs more often. Yeah, if you guys want a shout out, let us know. Julie Newton, shout out. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Julie Newton always gets a shout out. George Benson, shout out. Absolutely. Uh, Lee, uh, Lee Anthony beat, uh, from over in Birmingham, UK, he and his family all listen. And, uh, Lee Anthony, we love you, dude. I mean, cannot appreciate that enough. We've, uh, we've been getting a lot of emails and things lately from, uh, from like New Zealand and Australia and Canada. And, and, uh, first of all, you guys don't know how weird that is. But second of all, um, it's just so cool to know that, that it's, uh, this is reaching people, you know, halfway around the world. Oh, and Luke Thompson, shout yes, out. Yes. Shout out. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so if you guys want to shout out, uh, we're more than happy to do that for you. Um, just uh, hit us up on social media as always. Um, you can find any of our quotes there that we put up throughout the week and information about any future episodes. Uh, we do have some really cool stuff coming up in 2017, uh, but just to let you guys know, so you guys can start mentally prepping for this. Uh, we are going to take a little short break, uh, during the month of January, uh, just, so we can take some time off and really um, start prepping and gearing up for 2017. Um, we need a little vacation, and so <laughs> uh, we're going to enjoy that and uh, and use that to, to to read up and to reach out to some new guests. And uh, we've already got the first couple months of 2017 uh, booked up, planned, and in the can for the most part. Um, and we we are really really excited to uh, to share some of that stuff with you guys um, in the new year. Uh, but we will. Uh, we still got some really, really good stuff um, through that the the rest of 2016 that uh, I think you guys are going to freak out about. And uh, we'll do a little wrap up episode at the end of the year and kind of look back on uh, on this crazy ride. So, with that, Merry freaking Christmas, you deconstructionists! Yeah, you, you crazy bunch of people. You're the <laughs> you're the steam in this locomotive. <laughs> Thank you guys so much, and especially for everyone who's been. Get, uh, giving donations and uh, buying t-shirts. We could not say thank you enough. We love you guys so much. Thanks for doing this with us. Merry Christmas. Merry keep, Christmas. Keep deconstructing. Sleeping here
inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.